0: Tonight, we're going to be speaking about a current uh, US partnership, a current US relationship in the Middle East, uh, that with the United Arab Emirates, which is is customarily seen as uh, as little Sparta uh, as a uh, a stabilizing force in the region, particularly uh, one that has a common enemy with the United States uh, in Iran and terrorism. Uh, you know, and it's a uh, it has a lot of friends in Washington, uh, but there have also been a lot of uh, Emirati interventions uh, in its neighborhood in recent years, including in places like Yemen and Libya, most famously, but also alignment with coups in places like Egypt, Tunisia, and Sudan. Uh, growing commentary on human rights. Uh, and possible attempts to uh, influence the outcome of US elections. Our guest tonight uh, is John Hoffman, who is a political science PhD candidate at George Mason University, where he focuses on Middle East politics, He has an MA in Middle East and Islamic Studies and a BA in Global Affairs, both from Mason. Uh, He's been published in a number of academic and policy-oriented platforms, including Middle East Policy, the Digest of Middle East Studies, Foreign Policy, and more. Uh, And and the the genesis for this event was an article that John wrote in Foreign Policy last November, arguing that it is time uh, for the United States to cease providing a blank check to the UAE. Uh, So, John, in your article, you wrote that, uh, quote, awash with advanced U.S. weapons, the UAE has emerged as one of the region's most interventionist states, pursuing policies that have prolonged the region's civil wars, created humanitarian crises, crushed democratic aspirations and fueled the underlying grievances that lead to unrest, end quote. Uh, yet the United States, as I mentioned earlier, sees the UAE as a, uh, as a force for stability in the region. And you argue that this is part of a broader myth of authoritarian stability that has underpinned uh, U.S. foreign policy in the region. So what do you mean by all that?
1: Uh, Thank you, John, and thank you uh, to the society for having me on to speak tonight. Uh, So what I mean by this myth of authoritarian stability that has guided U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East for for decades, really, is the idea that autocrats can best protect U.S. interests, uh, whatever that means. Uh, You know, it's, it's very debated what our interests in the Middle East are. Um, but that they can best protect our interests in the Middle East uh, by imposing a shared political, economic, and military agenda on the region while sidelining the concerns or the interests of the masses. Um, Of course, in this article and others, you know, other places, I and a lot of other people have argued that this approach is not only flawed, but very paradoxical. Um, because we would argue that these autocratic rulers themselves are the root of instability in the region, both because of the nature of their rule and because of the policies that they pursue. It is really this lack of accountability which allows them to act with impunity, both at home and abroad, that people such as myself see as really the greatest divide in the Middle East, you know, So many times people talk about, you know, a Sunni-Shia divide or, uh, you know, East and West divide. People such as myself would argue that the greatest divide in the Middle East is between uh, those autocratic rulers and the masses under which uh, they're subjugated.
0: Sure. And and so... um... You know, and by the way, folks, we've got the Q and A feature running tonight. So, if you'd like to ask a question, feel free to drop it in the chat. You can also see other people's questions, upvote them, comment on them, etc. Uh, I'll be keeping a close eye on those uh, tonight. Although I've got a, f- a few questions, a few more questions of my own. Um, so, so one thing that kind of immediately occurred to me as I was reading your article is that uh, that you know there there are multiple directions, multiple policy directions that you can take. A view that authoritarianism and authoritarian states are an important source of instability. Uh, you know, one direction is is to say, okay, you know, we need to really factor that into our calculations in foreign policy. Uh, you know, and possibly not uh, not partner with states like that. The other is that uh, we should make the spread of democracy a goal of our foreign policy and something that we actively promote. And of course, most famously, uh, one of the forms that this took uh, was the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which seems to have turned out uh, rather badly in retrospect. So how do, you, how do you think through those kinds of questions about, you know, what, what do we do if authoritarian states are a source of instability because of the nature of their regimes.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I would say yes to not partnering with authoritarians, but no to spreading democracy via regime change like Iraq in 2003. Um, You know, what I would argue is that the best approach for the United States would be to end weapon sales and military aid to these countries. and end our overly militarized approach to the region and thereby lead with diplomacy, but also to engage with civil society actors on the ground, pushing for reforms and things like that. Uh, most, m- not most, but much of the military aid that we actually send to the region actually violates existing U.S. laws, both Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act and the Leahy Laws, which prevent the United States from providing military aid to actors who are engaged in gross human rights abuses. Uh, we, the United States cannot control what every government does, obviously, But what we can do is we can end U.S. complicity in the atrocities committed by these governments and reckless adventurism abroad. Uh, This, of course, is not just, you know, the UAE, but, you know, countries such as Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, you know, I would say, you know, ending military aid to Israel is imperative. You know, so this this is a much broader scope than just the UAE.
0: Sure. And and so, you know, one of the other views uh, that you've engaged with in, in your article in foreign policy was that uh, part of the underlying theory for why the United States should be arming and partnering with states like the UAE uh, is that um, uh, we need to deprioritize the region in our foreign policy uh, and would prefer, you know, that we want to economize on uh, the expenditure of power there and that therefore we should transfer uh, some of the security roles that we play in the region to local partners and hence arm them, uh, and that this would lead the United States to have more power to spare in its uh, in its conduct in, say, Asia. So how does that... Uh, Do you think that there are still ways to achieve a more limited U.S. role in the region if we aren't leaning on local partner states?
1: Yeah, of course. And, you know, what I would say is what needs to happen is a de-exceptionalization of the Middle East region uh, in U.S. foreign policy. And, and, And what I mean by that is end the overly militarized approach to the region, lead with diplomacy, um, and recognize that the geopolitical exceptionalism of the Middle East, which has been called primarily because of oil in the region, but also uh, the status of Israel, that these underlying uh, imperatives for U.S. policy in the region really need to be really need to be reassessed. And, and I know we'll get to it later in the conversation about great power competition in the Middle East. But uh, just as a, a a prelude to that, um, I, I would say, you know, this idea that if the United States draws down or, you know, pivots elsewhere that somebody else will fill the void. Um, I, I I don't really buy that. I've, I've I've written a good amount about how neither Russia nor China could really fill a U.S. Void in the region, and and I don't want to get too far ahead because I know we'll we'll touch on some of that later.
0: Yeah, well, let's go ahead and go into that right now. The uh, <laughs> you know that that folks one of one of the bases of this argument uh, or or of similar arguments for uh, U.S. partnership with various Gulf states uh, is that the Middle East you know it, it continues to be an important source of resources and therefore is a, uh, a, a key strategic region that it's going to be an arena of competition uh, with China and that uh, therefore we should be partnering with local states or competing with China uh, for their allegiance. And, and China has been investing uh, a lot and building a lot of influence in the area. And I mean, I mean recently there was talk that, uh, they had had some sort of arrangement. I think it was for a, a, a possible military base in the Emirates that the Emiratis seemed to have backed away from. I, I'm not so fresh on the details of that, but that's that's how I remember it. What I mean, what do you make of this idea of fighting other great powers, uh, whether militarily or politically, uh, for the Middle East? So,
1: what I would say is that off the bat this idea of the Middle East as a, you know, grand theater of great power competition is rather overblown. Um, what I would prefer to do is flip the question around and ask, not necessarily what does the Middle East mean for the great powers, but what does the return of great power competition mean for regional actors and in and, and their interests? And I, I did an article for Middle East policy called the return of great power competition to the Middle East, a two level game. And it essentially argues that these are not, you know, one way patron client relationships. Uh, this is very much a two level game. And the manipulation of great power politics in the Middle East is is certainly, you know, not a new uh, development. You know, just look at the, the Cold War. but increasingly Middle East actors are seeking to play great powers off one another, the United States, China, and China in particular, but also Russia. Um, so, you know, what I argue is, is there's, it's it's regional actors that are kind of in the driver's seat here. Um, and what I would say is that they, you know, seek to gain what they can from cooperation with Uh, states such as Russia and China, and in the article, I kind of talk about how it's a shared desire to uphold the authoritarian status quo in the region, Um, access to energy markets. You know, China is now the largest uh, oil consumer, investor, and trade partner in the the Middle East, Um, but it's the United States that upholds this overbearing security or security Atmosphere, or whatever you want to call it, um, that allows Russia and China to expand their interests in the region at a very low cost. So, the actors in the Middle East, you know, want the United States to remain deeply engaged in the region as the security guarantor. But I would say that you know, much of the advances that we're seeing of Russia and China in the region are actually taking place underneath this broader U.S. security umbrella uh, that you know maintains. Relative stability in the region for these actors to expand their interest at a very low cost, without assuming really any of the any of the costs.
0: Yeah, what what do you think of this uh, this Chinese uh, base decision? Uh, you know what what do you think was was behind all of that uh, and and behind the reversal?
1: So I think with the Chinese base in in the UAE, I think the decision. To both pursue that and scrap it. I think this is part of a broader, you know, give and take here, whereby they're pivot, not pivoting, but they're they're playing one off the other. And they're saying, you know, hey, if if you're not willing to commit the resources, if you're not willing to write us a blank check, essentially, uh, we can go elsewhere. And you know what I what I just personally viewed this out viewed this as was kind of a shot across the bow of the United States, saying, "Hey, you know, we have ties with China. You know, they were in discussions for the for the military base." But I I viewed this through the lens of kind of flashing a notice to the United States. It's you know almost a, a do more. <laughs> um, notice and, and, uh, similar with like the F 35 deals, you know, the, the Emirates have pulled, pulled out of the deals. Um, either they've stated that they have pulled out of the deals, but what I would argue is that again, this is kind of grandstanding. This is them saying, you know, Hey, you won't provide us with the F 35 without attaching too many, you know, strings to it. We'll just go elsewhere. And I think the week before, a couple of days before they made this decision, uh, Russia was in Dubai showing off its new fighter jet. So, you know, it's these it's these things, you know, I think a lot of it is 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 visual.
0: Yeah, it, it certainly brings to mind, uh, you know, you mentioned that this is not new great power competition uh, in the region, and also local states being able to play the great powers off each other to their advantage. And uh, Stephen McGlinchey uh, has a, an old book, uh, uh, U.S. Arms Policies Toward the Shah's Iran, that uh, gets into some of these dynamics and how the Shah had a decent amount of agency. You know, the United States always had... A, uh, a bit of a different vision for what Iran's military should look like, that it should basically be built to prevent the Soviets from rolling in. And the Shah tended to, be interested in big shiny weapons in building a blue water navy uh, in a number of things that the united States was not interested in and even though he was aligned with the united states he was he shared at the time a border with the soviet union and interacted with them a fair bit and he would he would flirt with the soviets uh, in particular when the united States wasn't giving him uh what he wanted there were there was at least one major time where he evaluated uh buying some uh, some russian fighters fighters uh, in lieu of American fighters I think during a period where he was frustrated that we wouldn't give him our uh, our best fighters I think it was the f-15 uh, at the time that he was trying to get uh, and uh, they the Soviets also built a, uh, a steel plant uh, up in Iran you know and this was uh, was part of that uh, that interaction um, Let's go. Let's 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 dig into that F thirty five sale a bit. You know, are there any more more details on that? Because I know there had been a bit of mobilization against it uh, here in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, am, among activists, uh, kind of along the grounds you described earlier. You know, human rights concerns, consideration over some of these conflicts. But then ultimately, it was actually the Emiratis who appear to have uh, to have backed out. What's the story there?
1: So yeah, exactly. Uh, just as you described i if if i had to make a prediction i would say you know despite efforts to curtail the f35 sales um and even despite the Emiratis you know having canceled acceptance i i still believe that these deals will likely happen and i think uh i i may not have made that assessment a couple of days ago but i think after the recent uh houthi launching the strikes uh against the UAE. And I I think that will really push the United States and the UAE even further together. Um, And I I think viewed through, through that lens of, of, you know, rapidly development, rapid developments on the ground right now. uh, I I think, I think the F-35s are just more so of a matter of when, not really a matter of if.
0: Do, Do you think that they, uh, They have a vision of of really becoming a high level effective operator of the F-35. Because one of you know one of the one of the images that we have of Gulf militaries and Gulf weapons purchases, uh, in from the United States is that they are not necessarily highly effective operators of them, but that a big part of why they buy these things is to cement relationships. With uh, with the United States, what what do you make of that?
1: Well, I think it's both. I, I think that one, you're exactly right. It is to cement relationships with the United States. But I think on the other hand, they they do you know use these weapons. I mean, uh, let, let let's look at you know two days ago or three days ago, the uh, the recent bombing of the detention facility in Yemen. Uh, I don't know if you saw the picture, but they they picked up the uh, a piece of shrapnel, and it, you know it it had a Raytheon code on it, uh, so they definitely use these weapons. Um, the the UAE has also you know launched airstrikes in places such as Libya, Yemen. Um, so these these weapons are definitely used, but I I I I think I would agree with you there and say that these are more so to to show you know look how close we are with the United States, uh, more so than they're going to be. You know, use in any sort of active combat zone.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly does. Uh, you know, it it has multi layered uh, uh, rationales for the United States and for various actors in the United States because F thirty uh, five cost overruns have been such a major concern here. Uh, and uh, the size of the F thirty five by by the United States has been has been in question because of that. And of course, if you make more of something, you can often get some uh, some cost improvements. And so. You know, there are there are incentives even if you don't necessarily have an F thirty five plan in your district uh, as a member of Congress to uh, to to support something like this. But you mentioned you know the recent strikes in Yemen, uh, and and that I think gets to to one of the the big uh, points of contention uh, that you mentioned in your article. So what? Just take us back a bit. What's the what's the UAE's role in the conflict in Yemen?
1: Sure. So in Yemen. The UAE, despite having to uh, the claims of withdrawal in 2019, the UAE is still very involved in Yemen and, uh, you know, Yemen remains, you know, whenever speaking about Yemen, you know, I always feel compelled, you know, to to mention, you know, this is one of the world's worst humanitarian disasters and uh, the United States continues supporting the bombing of Yemen, almost unabated. But Abu Dhabi continues to provide weapons uh, to militias and it actively supports the Southern Transitional Council in Yemen, which seeks an independent South Yemen. So there's a bit of a clash there between the pro-government coalition fighting on behalf of President Hadi. The Southern Transitional Council seeks an independent South Yemen, whereas Hadi seeks to reunify the entire country. Uh, the UAE has also continued uh air operations in support of such forces and continues to occupy and hold tremendous influence over Yemen's strategic islands such as Mayun and the uh Socotra archipelago. But it's also worth yeah. oh, oh I'm so I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, go ahead,
0: go ahead. Yeah, I,
1: I also think it's worth noting because there's been a lot of great reporting over the past couple of years that even post this 2019 um Claim of withdrawal, the UAE has been accused of engaging in war crimes in Yemen, torture, the recruiting of child soldiers, direct assassination campaigns using ex US soldiers, uh, and transferring US weapons to Al Qaeda linked fighters. So, you know, there's a, still a very active uh, UAE presence in Yemen.
0: Yeah, take take us through a bit of that. You know, some of those factions on the ground that they have been backing, that they are backing. You know, where there's that, where there are some of these frictions happening within the uh, the, the non Houthi uh, forces.
1: Yeah, so, so the UAE backs the Southern Transitional Transitional Council, and uh, one thing that I wanted to mention also was they back what is uh, referred to as the Giants Brigade, and. Anybody who's been following Yemen lately, um, pro-government forces fighting on behalf of Yemeni president, uh, Yemeni's president Hadi has recently seized the oil rich province of uh, Shabwa. And after successfully pushing out the Houthis uh, from this province, they continue their campaign in neighboring Marib. But UAE back forces have played a central role here. So between the Southern Transitional Council but also the Giants Brigade, uh, it's estimated, I think the Giants Brigade, I've seen suggestions as high as like 15,000 fighters. Not not a tremendous amount is known about these uh, this fighting force, but it's an emirati back force that some reports have suggested is primarily comprised of Salafi fighters. And I think this, is most interesting um, because, you know, the UAE is always viewed as, you know, viewing any form of political Islam as kind of anathema to its interests. But here's an example in South Yemen where the UAE is actually working with uh, Salafi fighters against uh, the Houthis. So I I, I just viewed that as, as very interesting.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a, a, a surprising uh, surprising alignment, especially because one of the the factions uh, aligned with the Hadi government is uh, uh, is their old enemy, the uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, exactly with uh, the Isla Party. Um, so, what why have uh, why have the Houthis been kind of escalating against the UAE lately? Oh, well, I
1: think it's because of these losses on the ground. If I had to pinpoint. Uh, One reason, I think it's these losses on the ground, and I think it's because of the significant role that, say, the Giants Brigade has played. Um, You know, the Emiratis are an active party to the war in Yemen. It's honestly quite surprising that they're just, you know, it's horrible that they're targeting the UAE, but it's honestly quite surprising that the UAE has been able to stay so separated from this conflict, um, you know, for so long because the Houthis have. Launched, you know, missile attacks into Saudi Arabia for for quite a while. If if I had to pinpoint a reason, it would it would be these recent losses on the ground, especially uh, uh, the the Shabwa province.
0: And so, and you mentioned the islands and the the Emirati role there. Uh, take us through the significance of that.
1: Sure. So. The islands, and I, I i recently did a World Politics Review article looking at two in particular, Mayun, which is located directly in the Battle Mendeb, and then the broader uh, Socotra Archipelago. I think it's four islands, the largest of which is also named uh, Socotra. Um, they play an incredibly important role here because of their strategic locations. Like I said, Mayun is located directly in the Battle Mendeb Strait and the Socotra Archipelago uh, bridges the Gulf of Aden and the Arabian Sea. Aside from the fact that these two islands reside within one of the most important global maritime routes for trade, these islands are really at the crossroads of a number of not just regional competitions, but global ones as well. Regionally, the islands act as a powerful platform for power projection into the Horn of Africa, uh, up the Red Sea into the Eastern Mediterranean, and it serves as a gateway into the uh, Indian Ocean through the Arabian Sea. But I think what I found most interesting about these islands is this concept that an analyst Tom Hussein came up with, called a strategic triangle, and. After the the Abraham Accords, you know, his argument was that this is a broader attempt by the United States to control these critical maritime routes as it seeks to pivot away to, you know, Asia, or I guess, you know, also now Eastern Europe. Um, But so his argument was, was, you know, here is Israel, and then down the Persian Gulf, here's the UAE, and then the bottom of the triangle goes across to these islands and then the last leg of it goes up the Red Sea. So this triangle also represents the place from where China gets the vast majority of its oil. Um, It also circumvents China's uh, military base in uh, the Horn of Africa, and it also circumvents Russia's proposed naval base in Sudan. So the the rationale kind of behind it is, is the United States is is absolutely fine with the UAE militarizing these islands because if tensions with China were to escalate in the Pacific, the ability to close these lanes or to at least have influence over these shipping lanes from where China receives the majority of its oil would be a, a strategic asset.
0: So we've got a question here from uh, from Saad Latif. And by the way, everybody, uh, again, our our, our Q and A function is open. Feel free to drop questions in there. Uh, he says, I believe the uh, the crux of your argument is that supporting destabilizing powers in the GCC is not moral, not only morally reprehensible, but also a policy mistake because we are enabling bad faith actors in the region. Uh, but at the same time. US has developed a historic strategic depth in the Persian Gulf that policymakers are just unwilling to let go of, regardless of our changing priorities in the Middle East. And so he says, I'm curious to hear what you think the way out is from this conundrum. How can the United States revamp its policy toward the GCC without giving the impression of disengagement or rocking the boat too much? Mm-hmm.
1: No, and and, and I, I think that's a great question, but I think that's also uh, correct. I think The United States is just unwilling to let go uh, at at this point in terms of what I think the way out of this conundrum is, is is I'm not really sure, because at the end of the day, I think this boils down to a lack of not ideas, but a lack of political will. Um, There is a very, very powerful uh, lobbying force in D.C., that seeks to keep the United States deeply engaged in this region, um, whether that be arms manufacturers, whether that be uh, think tanks. So I think the more and more we can challenge this
0: narrative. Uh, oh, I lost the question there. Um, but oh, sorry. Th- it's in the answered tab. Oh, oh, OK. I thought I
1: said, thought I, uh, exactly. but I think I think the more we can challenge this narrative, the more that. Our generation gets into positions of influence and power, especially as we've grown up kind of in this post-9-11 era where we've seen a lot of you know failed US policies and, and the repercussions of those policies. So I think, you know, how can the United States revamp its policy towards the GCC? Um, I I think it's just a, a a job of knowledge production, of of challenging these dominant narratives. And hopefully, as you know, more like-minded people uh, get into office and things like that. Hopefully, we can begin actually adjusting some of these policies, which have, uh, you know, I would argue, and a lot of other people would argue, uh, ha- have been very counterproductive.
0: Sure. So, so, going back to some of these specific cases here. Uh, and another place where the Emiratis have been pretty active is the uh, post-2011 situation in Libya. What's their role there? Yeah, so in Libya, um,
1: Abu Dhabi has provided really extensive military and economic support for the Libyan National Army, led by uh, Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar. And, of course, he is fighting against the UN-recognized government uh, based in Tripoli. The UAE has carried out air strikes, drone strikes uh, in support of Haftar, and they've provided them with a lot of weaponry, which is uh, in violation of UN arms embargo. I I remember this being one of the uh, pieces that um, I'll say people took beef with in the foreign policy article was that I didn't mention that other actors are violating this embargo. Uh, Other actors certainly are violating this um embargo. Embargo, whether it be Turkey, whether it be Qatar, whether it be uh, the Emirates, whether it be Egypt, you know, it's not just it's not just the Emiratis. Um, But the the Emiratis have also been accused of uh, using Sudanese mercenaries to buttress Haftar's forces in Libya. Finance this one I found most interesting, uh, financing the Russian uh, Wagner Group mercenaries uh, fighting for Haftar and also itself engaging in alleged war crimes in in libya
0: yeah i mean it's a it's a very uh just just purely from a uh, international alignment standpoint uh the and for the from the perspective of u.s foreign policy it's a very interesting situation because we officially support the tripoli government which as you mentioned is recognized by the united nations And it's also backed by uh, Turkey, which is officially a US ally, uh, and Qatar, which is a country that hosts, like the Emirates and a number of other places, uh, a US base. Hmm. Uh, On the other hand, uh, General Haftar, uh, who is backed by the UAE, a US partner uh, that hosts a US base, uh, is also backed by Russians, uh, who we don't exactly get along with these days, uh, but he himself uh, used to live out in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and was a well-known CIA asset. And uh, there's, you know, there's been a, a certain amount of uh, talk uh, of the United States switching uh, its alignment toward Haftar uh, during the Trump administration. I know there had been uh, at least one uh, kind of pro-Haftar statement, I think, from the president himself, even though, once again, the official US policy continued to be support for the Tripoli government. So it's a uh, it's a remarkably complicated situation where, in some ways, the United States uh, is on both sides, uh, even, even though we're officially on one. Um, yeah, and I
1: think, uh, and I don't mean to interrupt you here, John. Um, I think one thing that'll be really interesting moving forward with Libya in particular is there have been a lot of reports recently of Haftar and Haftar's son uh, visiting Israel, um, kind of talking about, and this is coming from uh, Israeli media, uh, talking about you know the normalization of of ties in exchange for military aid and assistance. So I think the, the more that the Israelis get involved, I think the United States is going to find itself you know pulled yet again and by another actor. You know, it, it, I think it'll be really interesting to see how how that develops.
0: Yeah. And the uh, it's also the fact that they would be seeking arms from another state is is remarkable in its own right. And I think is a testament to the limits of some of these forms of influence, because uh, even though if you said, OK, you know, Russia, the UAE, uh, you know, experienced, uh, effective military leader in the form of Haftar, you look at that on paper and say, okay, well, those guys are definitely going to win. Uh, but actually they've, they've had a lot of struggles. They've had a, de- a decent amount of setbacks, uh, and the, uh, you know, that some of the Turkish provided weapons in particular, uh, have been seen as very effective. Uh, you know, I, there was a, a recent article saying, Hey, like these, uh, the, you know these turkish provided drones have been very effective uh against russian air defenses and by the way uh, the ukrainians also operate these drones and uh might be able to uh to use them in the event of uh, a russian intervention deeper into uh into ukraine um, so we've got another another angle that you mentioned uh is that uh the, the emiratis uh support Reported uh, or aligned with uh several of the recent coups in the region, including Egypt and Tunisia, and apparently uh Sudan as well. What's what's the story there? Why are they doing that?
1: So I would say you know, this is because the UAE is very much a status quo power in in the Middle East. Uh like many other states in the region, uh the UAE seeks to prevent the emergence of a popular democratic paradigm in the Middle East, uh, because this would challenge their own authoritarian status. But also on the more like geopolitical side, the UAE doesn't wanna see competitors benefit geopolitically from the overthrow of these autocracies um, by their adversaries strategically exploiting these vacuums. So I think it's kind of a a dual purpose. It's, It's this desire to maintain the regional balance of power, which is in their favor. But also uh, a desire to maintain the authoritarian status quo in the region.
0: And and how are things going? I mean, speaking of uh, you know some of these forces, you know the uh, on in a lot of these situations, the Qataris are on the other side, uh, and you know the the last few years have seen a lot of uh, friction between the Emiratis, the Saudis, uh, the Bahrainis, Egyptians, uh, among others versus uh, the Qataris kind of culminating in uh, essentially a kind of blockade or or a soft blockade or siege. how is how has that been going? Because that's been a major, uh, a major headache for the United States since we were partners with uh, with both countries. And, you know, there were even rumors that uh, Mohammed bin Salman had planned to uh, uh, you know possibly even invade uh, Qatar at one point. and the And uh, Mr. Kushner uh, was heavily involved in trying to uh, sort things out in that situation. How has that been developing?
1: yes i remember the reports that uh saudi arabia was going to dig a moat and uh and make qatar an island um but yeah so the the gulf crisis you know has officially ended but you know i would say that the underlying sources of friction between these states has has definitely not abated um qatar you know and turkey you know sought to cast their lot behind a a different set of actors uh they were primarily supportive of islamist movements in the middle east um this does not mean that they're supportive of you know democracy movements in the middle east uh they're supportive of 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 those who you know they perceive that would best advance their interests um but you still see really intense competition Despite a, you know, a cooling of narratives and things like that, you see intense competition still in the Horn of Africa. You see it in the eastern Mediterranean. Um, you, you still see it in, in Libya. Um, but, you know, as there's, you know, kind of this talk now about, you know, a, a regional reproachment, a regional. Uh, I don't want to say people you know getting together and singing kumbaya but you know this this idea of them you know cooling uh you know these these sources of friction and things like that but i would say that you know these conflicts are more frozen than than resolved uh the underlying sources of grievances that led to the arab uprisings in the first place have not been addressed have only gotten dramatically worse um so you know the these these conflicts between these states seeking to benefit from these uh monumental changes in the region could easily erupt just as you know just as you saw you know the UAE and Saudi you know swoop into Sudan or you know with the coup in Tunisia you know the, it's just so rapidly developing that i would say these tensions are frozen not uh not resolved
0: yeah, and that gets to you know another element of this kind of international strategic competition uh, between some of these Gulf actors uh, is a question of, of uh, how how we should view uh, Islamist movements in the region uh, as political forces, particularly ones linked to the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, because the the critique uh, that is advanced. Uh, well by by the critics of the, of the Muslim Brotherhood and and similar movements uh, is that it, it's not a uh, it's not a democratic organization that uh, to the extent it wants uh, democracy. It's so that they can have, you know, one person, one vote, one time uh, that uh, that it can be a gateway drug for further radicalization. You know, the people will join the, the brotherhood and then leave it for more radical uh, institutions Uh you know, is that something that is? Uh, would you say that's basically an accurate view, or uh, you know, should the United States share uh, the Emirati et cetera concern with uh, Muslim Brotherhood influence in the region?
1: So I would argue no. I would I would argue that that the Muslim Brotherhood is is, is not a uh, a terrorist organization and is not uh, this this boogeyman that that they made them out to be. Now, that being said, that's not saying that I support the Muslim Brotherhood, um, but mainstream political Islamist movements in the Middle East have really begun a turn towards, uh, I think it was Asif Bayat, he kind of termed it post-Islamism, whereas, you know, we used to see Islamist parties, you know, staunchly adhering to the idea that Islam is the solution. Now we kind of have a post-Islamist turn by groups such as the Muslim Brotherhood, whereby they advocate for you know democracy, human rights, and, and things like that. I I think that the Muslim Brotherhood is often used as a uh, a scapegoat for a lot of these governments. But I also think that if the people of the Middle East were to genuinely be able to choose and have their array of uh, individuals to select from across the ideological spectrum with no constraints on people who can actually, you know, run for office or things like that. I don't think the Muslim Brotherhood would fare incredibly well. Um, you know, in Egypt, you know, that, that was a very, uh, Engineered uh, election, let's put it that way. Of you know, it, it, was, it was essentially Mohamed Morsi, and then it was uh, the the individual who was uh, din- directly associated with uh, with Mubarak. So you know, the people. It was essentially a a no vote for him more than it was an enthusiastic. You know, we love the Um But no, I I, I don't share that uh, negative perception of the Muslim Brotherhood. I understand people say you know, oh, well people go on. You know, start out in the Muslim Brotherhood, but go on to do um, do horrible things. But, uh, you know, that I don't think is a reason to outlaw the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, People often start out in the Republican Party and then go on to do and then leave it for, you know, much more extreme organizations. So uh...
0: we've got a question from uh, Brian Choquette who asks, in what ways have the failures of the Arab Spring with respect to seeding democracy in the Middle East informed current policymakers? I think he means in in their approach to the the relationship with the UAE. Is this a situation where the United States might prefer to deal with non-authoritarian governments, but there simply aren't many good options in the region? Yeah,
1: no, I, I think this is a great question. And, you know, I, th- I think I understand uh, what you're asking here. So, are, are you essentially asking uh, how has the failure of the Arab Spring just informed current policymakers' approach to the region in in general?
0: Yeah, I think that's how I, I see it. I, okay. I, that's how I read the question. Yes, you know, has the United States, uh, you know, even if we would prefer to work with uh, countries that politically are a bit more like us. Uh, we've seen the the arab spring basically uh fail particularly now that now that tunisia uh had the coup uh you know it's hard to point to cases of success there and that therefore there are not really any nascent uh democratic partners in the area that we can that we can turn to and so we've kind of got the best partners we can find
1: no and and, and uh, uh thank you for uh clarifying no absolutely and I, I, what I think is, is since twenty eleven, we've seen you know the the failures of the Arab uprisings, but I think we need to investigate those those reasons why it actually failed, and that would be you know these longstanding uh, systems of autocracy in the Middle East, these counter revolutionary forces, and the way in which uh, external powers outside of the Middle East, including the United States uh, undermined a lot of these, uh, a lot of these movements for democracy. So yes, there, the Arab spring has, uh, turned, I don't want to call it a, a, a failure. Yes. You've seen a lot of bad outcomes because of the hijacking of these uprisings because of, uh, external interference and things like that. But I think what it did was it, kindled within people in the region uh, a sense that change is possible. And uh, I, 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 I think the Arab uprisings aren't finished. I, I, I think the United States should stop doubling down on these autocratic actors, which only makes the grievances that originally led to these mass mobilizations worse. Um, and it's here where I would argue that the United States needs to shift to engage with like civil society actors and things like that. Um, yes. And, and I completely understand, you know, the very realist approach, you know, hey, we got to deal with what we got. Um, but we can deal with what we have without being complicit in the actions and policies uh, enforced by these governments, so we can stop selling them weapons, we can stop this unconditional aid, we can hold them accountable when they seek to interfere domestically in US politics, or when they uh, go on these illegal hacking sprees. Um, Yeah.
0: And since you mentioned uh, interference in US politics, I mean, that's that's another uh, thing that hasn't gotten too much attention, but take us through a bit of uh, uh, what you're alluding to there.
1: Yes. So... Speaking direct, uh, do you want me to talk more about the kind of the more general influence in the United States and then get into that, like, you know, those more like malicious? Yeah, well,
0: I, th- I think that actually would be good context because there's there's both uh, a lot of legal influence yeah. and some allegations of efforts to illegally uh, influence uh, U.S. politics and policymaking and policy conversations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's why I wanted to clarify, because, you know, the U.S. being a democracy and an open society, a lot of the maybe if you want to call them influence campaigns, a lot of this stuff is legal. Um, So speaking of those more legal um, avenues, you know, governments such as the UAE or Israel or Saudi Arabia, um, they fund heavily, many think tanks uh, in D.C. uh, ben Ben Friedman has done some really phenomenal work looking at the UAE lobby in in Washington. Um, they they fund think tanks, uh, media organizations. I a, a couple months back did an article for uh, Responsible Statecraft looking at the merging of the traditional quote unquote Israel lobby and it's merging with the arab autocracies in, in the middle east and there it's really fascinating because you look at it their lobbying efforts have really started to merge and, and you have countries such as the UAE or Saudi Arabia really reaching out to groups uh, very staunchly within the israel lobby many jewish organizations um And, and, you know, think tanks that are traditionally within uh, the Israel lobby, such as Foundation uh, for Defense of Democracies and things like that. There's also a high level of personal connections here you know, there are individuals uh, in the Emirati government who are very connected in D.C. Uh, Same with the Saudi government, uh, the Israel government, you know, these individuals are very well known. Um, in dc i don't want to say any names or anything like that um but they're they're very well known their their courting activities are very well known and that's where you get into more of this uh attempts to malignly interfere in us domestic politics so the two that i touched on in, in the article were uh tom barack and and george nader um barack of course uh was Um, I'm sorry, Barack, no, Nader, sorry. Nader was the one who was uh, accused, uh, or according to the New York Times article, he was the one who met with uh, uh, Donald Trump Jr. and the one who said, you know, we want to get your father elected. We have people, you know, in the UAE and Israel who want to get your father elected. Uh, And they were the ones who... uh, gave the idea of engaging in these social media uh, manipulation efforts. Uh, of course, you know, the Mueller report goes kind of blank after that. You know, of course, they don't know, you know, whether or not that was ever taken up or anything like that. But the, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Qatar, Turkey, every single state in the Middle East has engaged in social media manipulation, uh, whether it be fake accounts and uh, troll armies and things like that. But then, of course, there's Tom Barack, um, who failed to register as a foreign agent, who tried to push, you know, certain individuals to be secretary of state, secretary of defense and things like that to Donald Trump. Um, again, without declaring that he was a foreign agent and the people that he were pushing, you know, were perceived as sharing the interests of the Emirates. Um, I, I haven't followed up on uh, the legality surrounding him anymore. I know. I, I think George Nader was actually just. Uh, I think he was convicted of. Um, yeah, well, there was
0: there was a lot of legal action. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, it's, sure. I, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and he's speaking the defense to the uh, the influence, uh, Saad Latif in the in the comments says uh, that you know that there's also a lot of funding for universities and educational uh initiatives uh you know which I, you know i could i could tell you I, you know american university for example there's a sharjah plaza uh named after one of the uh one of the emirates there's also a, a, a big, the big atrium in the school of international service uh is named after a bahraini prince I'm, I'm sure there are similar uh similar situations at some of the other uh universities in the area um, but we've got a question from steve hooger You know, mentions uh, the Abraham Accords. Uh, In light of the perspective of the UAE as a negative actor, how should the accords be viewed? On the one hand, it's a positive development on the surface that you know you're seeing this uh, Rapprochement and and, uh, peace, official peace between uh, Israel and uh, several Arab states. Uh, On the other. Uh, perhaps recognizing Israel may be a cynical move uh, by the UAE to curry favor or stay in America's good graces. What do you make of the Abraham Accords here?
1: So, so I would argue that the Abraham Accords, uh, and this might be a you know sound harsh, but I, I would argue that they have nothing to do with peace. Um, this is a creation of a more formal coalition excuse me as the united states seeks to offshore its interests and pivot elsewhere but um i actually think it's coming out tomorrow i have I have a uh, a new article talking about how this is also a coalition that is dedicated to preserving the authoritarian status quo in the middle east um i, I, I would argue that that israel benefits greatly um from these arab uh, from working with these arab autocracies and uh views democracy in the region as something anathema to its interests uh so I, w- I would say that the abraham accords are a way for the united states to offshore these efforts in a more formalized coalition and of course you know these states want to be uh part of this coalition they want to you know have the united states as their security guarantor along with the goodies that they got you know when they Joined the agreements, you know, the UAE, if, 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 if if they do indeed get the F-35s or, you know, Morocco got the Western Sahara, um, Sudan got taken off the, the foreign, uh, terrorism sponsor list, uh, did Bahrain get anything, any immediate goodies? I don't think they did. Um, but, but I, I would say that it needs to be viewed in, in that context, a desire to maintain the authoritarian status quo in the region, and a desire to be part of this more formalized coalition as the United States seeks to uh, pivot elsewhere.
0: So we've got about two more minutes, but uh, one of the other issues uh, that that's drawn the headlines a lot uh, is the the UAE's association with uh, with surveillance uh, of dissidents, of, uh, of, of others, of journalists, take us, take us through that.
1: Yeah, I know. it uh, I, I think there was also a question in there, uh, about whether it's okay to contact me about the program at Mason. Uh, absolutely. Should, should I just put, maybe put my email in the, in the chat box here or. Yeah, you can announce it, whatever,
0: whatever you'd like.
1: Yeah. Let me put it in the, uh, I will put it here. I think I sent it yeah um, you did okay great yeah so uh, speaking about these surveillance softwares so of course Israel's NSO group has sold its Pegasus software to the UAE um, which has been used to you know surveil dissidents political activists abroad politicians abroad um but I think what's what's most interesting um is there was, I think it was in 2019 or 2020, there was a comprehensive investigation published by uh, Reuters, which documents how former Western security officials and various intelligence contractors have really established a surveillance powerhouse in the Middle East. Um, It's now controlled and directed by, I believe Dark Matter, um, the Emirati firm Dark Matter. But uh, originally led by uh, former US counterterrorism czar, uh, Richard Clark, when he was serving as a a consultant for the UAE, a secret unit was initially uh, developed and designed to assist the Emiratis in fighting terrorism electronically. However, this gradually evolved and those targeted by this unit expanded to all of those deemed as foes by the UAE government. And this exploded post-2011. New targets grew to include women's rights activists uh, anywhere in the Gulf. Uh, They've prominently targeted many uh, women's rights activists in Saudi Arabia. Uh, They've targeted diplomats at the United Nations, personnel at FIFA, human rights activists, journalists, political dissidents, uh, government officials around the world, and even U.S. citizens. Uh, so, I would say the UAE and a lot of these governments in the region, more generally, just operate some absolute uh, surveillance powerhouses.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I believe some uh, some of the Americans involved in that uh, have faced legal consequences. And as I understand it, there have been warnings uh, sent out to members of the uh, former members of the intelligence community about uh, the potential uh, legal risks of uh, of getting involved uh, with some of these projects. And there has been uh, ongoing Legal fallout in the United States for some of these companies that are involved as well. But that is all yeah. of the time we have. Uh, John Hoffman of GMU has been our guest. Uh, I've dropped links in the chat to some of our upcoming events. Thank you, John, and thank you, everybody, for uh, this important discussion. Have a wonderful evening, everyone.
1: Thank you, John, for the opportunity.